Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects, and if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Joining me on the show today is a very special guest, William Smart from Smart Design Studio, a 40-person practice based in Sydney, Australia. In this episode, we discuss the challenges that William and the team faced as the practice grew and why William found hiring a skilled general manager early on in the journey was key to their success. We looked at how William was able to win his first multi-residential projects and he shared his tips for getting your foot in the door in this highly competitive space. We talked about why it's so important to build a profile in the industry with a broad marketing strategy and not just focus on reaching the next client. We looked at how William thinks about the studio's unique selling points and why it can be a good thing for an architect to have a signature approach that ties their projects together. And finally, we spoke about why it's important for architects to spend a bit of time educating their clients about design and how we as a profession can better engage with the public and promote the value of what architects do. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with William Smart from Smart Design Studio. William, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dave, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Awesome. So a lot of our Australian listeners will be very familiar with your studio and what you do, but there's a bunch of people in other countries that would appreciate maybe a little bit of an overview of of the studio and the sort of mix of work that you guys work on and, and also just a bit of an idea of sort of the size of the studio as well, which I think is an interesting component. Yeah, well, we, we are about 40 to 45 people and our practice was established in 1998. So we're nearly 25 years old now. About half our work is residential work, whether that's houses or apartment buildings. And the other half is a range of other things, uh, including commercial buildings, public buildings, uh, master planning, and even a little bit of product design. And uh, the studio sort of has gradually grown to that size. We arrived at about 40 people, I would think, probably seven or eight years ago now. And that's a size where we're very comfortable and we want to stay at that size and not grow anymore. Yeah. And in terms of being comfortable at that size, because quite often architects will talk about this, these sort of uh, difficult levels of practice size mm. where you get to a certain point and it's all great, then it's quite difficult to make a jump up to that next kind of bracket. And so if around 40 to 50, you've found is a bit of a, a sort of a sweet spot. What, 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 what's the reason for that? Or why, why have you found that to be a good size to sort of end up at? I think the size for us is one where we can participate in very large projects and yet we can oversee also thoroughly smaller projects. So we're able to do large and small. And I feel with our structure that we couldn't grow any more than that and maintain the quality or the rigor in the design documentation in particular. But speaking earlier to the other point is that we grew gradually. So I started on my own from my bedroom in 98. And then within a year, we'd had another person employed and then another person after that and so forth. And I felt as though somewhere around up to seven people, I could manage quite easily on my own. And then when we got to eight, nine, it started getting really hard and we grew to about 12 and it became impossible to do on my own. And then we got a general manager and he came in and did an amazing job, really. And Evan just made it very easy again. He looked after all the billing, the contracts, uh, the HR, the running of the office, the paying of the bills, and it just made things a lot easier. He was so good at attracting new clients because he was an incredible communicator and a great framer of what we do. He could frame it to the clients very well. He took that from 12 to about 20 and somewhere around then it became difficult. And I like to think of it sort of visually as almost like a cane, you know, a stick yeah. cane where you have the kind of knot where the leaves grow out of. There comes this point when it becomes really difficult and something has to give in order to release the pressure and take you to the next stage. Yeah. And at that point, I got a PA and we got a finance manager. Oh, okay. And then they were able to divvy up the jobs and work independently. And then from that, we grew to 30 and that felt okay. And then somewhere around 30, it got difficult. 
And then interesting enough, around 40, it became very difficult again. And and we didn't couldn't see really how to change the business there without really leaping to the next stage. So mm-hmm. we thought instead of changing how we work, we'll probably just get better at working at that scale and really master it. And that's something that I'm constantly working on is trying to find ways of doing it more efficiently, trying to find ways of making it more exciting for the staff here to develop their design, so more autonomy specifically, and also how do you kind of streamline it so that you're not bogged down at that size and you're able to do those things like very small projects and quite large projects and a little bit of product design as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. And when you were at that stage of around 12 employees, when when Evan came on board and started helping with all of those massive areas of the business, was his background outside of architecture? Was it all in business and, and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, and he he was actually a client, uh-huh. and he he was a client of mine who built a house and really loved architecture and design. And we just had a conversation. He said, "If there's a way I could get into this world, I would love it." And it just was that magic moment where I said, "Well, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> We're right at the moment now, struggling, and yep. and if you'd like to come and have a look and give it a try, then do that." And we started like that, and it went on for very uh, in a number of years. He was American, and he ended up leaving because he moved back with his family to the US. Okay. Um, but up until that point, we just had a very, you know, happy relationship working together. Do, do you think that that sort of 12-person stage was about the right time to do that? Or do you sort of wish that you had maybe done that sooner in hindsight? I had read somewhere that a manager can look after about seven people. And I thought that was probably about right. And in our work, I guess architecture tends to go, in my opinion anyway, quite slowly. Like you'll work on a house for months yep. before you lodge the planning application and then six months before you go to tender. So it's not as hard as other types of industries in managing. So I feel like somewhere between 10 and 12 is probably the right amount. But for us, it's always been that case of can you make it work? How do you fund it? How do you get yourself to that place where it's right? And I think you know when you know. And for us, it was somewhere 11 or 12. We just thought, oh, yeah. this, is, this is not working. We've got to rethink it. But up until that point, I was always thinking, well, maybe I could try doing this or I could offload this or, you know, I could outsource this and there might other, be other ways of working about it. Yeah. But I also, I, I don't, I was never taught any of this and most of us haven't, to be fair, uh, but I just sort of learned it on the run. So I started my practice after I'd had about six years of post-grad experience and I'd sort of learned really a lot of the fundamentals, like I knew how to draw and write a spec and coordinate consultants. But the rest of it, I just sort of did it by learning. And, you know, there was no training in how to run a business, mm-hmm. how to market a company, how to look after your team. You just learned it. And mostly it was when it got too hard or something was broken that we thought, hmm, yeah, we need to fix that, like getting an electrician. Yeah. Yeah. And you talking about the mix of work that you do now, the 50% residential and 50% kind of other stuff. Did you have a similar mix in those earlier days or was it more the residential and then a gradually more public and commercial started to come in over over time? Yeah, t- totally. So, I mean, my first project was to do a apartment renovation for $50,000. And then the next one was to do a terrace house extension in Sydney for like $100,000. So both impossibly low budgets that we somehow, we made it work. And then from that, grew to doing more of that type of work, which is, it's logical in a way, but it's also a hard part to growing is that people are attracted to you because of the work that you do. And then they see you as being able to do just like something you've done before, but maybe a little bit tailored to them. So growing it to larger scale work either requires a lucky opportunity or someone who believes in what you're able to offer and able to deliver. And I think it would have been in 99, someone asked me to renovate a very small block of uh, flats, I'd call them, rather than apartments. Mm. So a red brick block of flats that you see in the eastern suburbs of Sydney to renovate that and turn that around. And we did that project as our first apartment building and then went to do a couple more like that because it it looked pretty good at the end of it and people thought uh, we knew what we were doing. And also they could see the, the, the financial benefit of repositioning these, you know, very small apartments in the eastern suburbs within Sydney. And those projects were sort of interesting. They were never fully documented because the, the 
people didn't want that. And we didn't ever control them on the building site. So they were built pretty roughly. Yeah. Most of the details were sort of smashed together by the developer or the builder. And they looked good enough, but they weren't that good on close inspection. But we did use them to build knowledge and build understanding and to build the practice moving towards doing apartment buildings. And we also recognized with them that they gave us knowledge and insight into that to that whole world of apartment buildings. So we photographed them. It's hard to publish those kinds of projects. Mm. They weren't published so much, but they became part of our portfolio and our PowerPoints for selling future work. And then we gradually went on to do larger and larger projects. But off the back of those, we ended up hooking up with a couple of developers in Sydney that did DAs. And even though they promised they would deliver the whole building and the next one would be the job where you'd do the full documentation and run it on site and you get the outcome you're after, we quickly realized that most of those developers just wanted us to help her get through the planning process. And young architects, like we were at the time, are very keen and eager and persuasive and they want the outcome that the developer wants. We, At the time, we wanted to get something approved, even though it might have been 25% over the floor space ratio. We were in there to win the fight yeah. and we worked pretty hard on those. And so it came to me after like three or four years of doing a lot of DAs the realization came to me that these were never going to be real projects. They're mm-hmm. always going to be planning applications. And so I felt at that time that I had to change something. And so I just decided to rethink who we would approach. And we went to talk to developers like Fraser's, noting that there's a guy there called Dr. Quick, and he'd been doing these interesting projects in Sydney. Everything they started, they delivered. So there'd be promise for that. And we talked to him and we were able to go at that point and say, look, I've done these 12 DAs, but I haven't built much. Is there anything we can do? And he asked us to to furnish some apartments for him that he couldn't sell. And so we furnished five apartments. Gradually, they all sold. And then he gave us a project to do the interiors of a building called Central Park West, which is the tower on Broadway in Sydney, which is designed by Jean Nouvelle, it's Italian Jean Nouvelle. And we did the interiors of the short tower there. Yeah. And that was kind of our, our big break for us because we weren't just designing the template apartments, but we were doing the common areas, the foyer, we were overseeing the whole implementation of it across the board. And it really took our, our company from one that had been doing apartment buildings of 10 up to 20, took us to a row of doing 100 interiors. Wow. And that was probably our first breakthrough into that sector. And then Fraser's asked us to enter a competition, which we won. And that was our first building to do entirely on our own. Our breakthrough was really through interiors. And the insight to going there was to try and get stuff built. Was We just didn't want to be the people that did DAs forever. Yep. And we wanted to have stuff built. And from that, we built Connor and it did very well. And then other people believed in us and we went on to do more work for Fraser's and we're building stuff for them now, but also for other developers as well. Yeah. I'm glad we moved on to developers in multi-residential because it's an area that we haven't spent a lot of time on on the podcast, but it's one that a lot of uh, residential practices are really interested in. And one of you touched on so many things that they struggle with and talk to me about, which is that there, there usually isn't a lot of publicity and press coverage for multi-residential work. So you end up with this kind of chicken and egg problem of how do we actually kind of get our work out there. So most architects realize I need to be proactive and go out to the developers. They're not just going to find out about what I've been doing. But then it's this question of how do you do that? You know, coming from a private residential sort of space where you're not going out to, you know, people on the street and going, hey, do you need something done to your house? It's, it's all kind of that word of mouth and inbound. That can be a really big adjustment. But you were talking about there, you went and did a bit of prospecting, you identified who was the right developer in the market who had the right kind of work, and then you went to them. And that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And and we did it, we did it. It wasn't intentional, but he asked us to do interiors first. And we thought, oh yeah, we can do yeah. that. And that's how that was our way into it. And if I look back on that now, I recognize that it put him in a very low position of risk mm. because we were going to design I think there was probably four template apartments. That was our initial commission. And if he didn't like them, he could do something else with them. Mm. And I look 
back on that and I could think about the challenges that I had at the time. And I'd say they were probably assigned generally to this idea of risk. And this would apply to many people that um, if you're someone who's been doing houses and you want to do multi-res, then the developer might think of you as a bit of a risk. A, you may, you may not understand construction. You might not understand how to build DNC type construction, which is a world in itself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the market might not know you for presenting you to the market as the person who's, who's selling, you know, the, the name behind the, the sale success. And then also just, is there a risk there that you won't have thought about something or covered off something? You know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and that's what a new project can expose you to. I think you have to assess what the other person would be considering in, the, in you as an option. So if you were a developer of scale and you were considering someone who'd done a lot of apartment buildings versus someone who hadn't done many, then you'll be weighing up the risk of training and developing someone young with someone who's more experienced. And one way to manage that, which could be a form of introduction for some people, would be to partner, so to work with someone who's tried and tested and, and develop a partnership relationship. Another way of doing it would be to choose a very small boutique-style building where you feel like you're well and truly within your comfort zone and then to grow from there. Or another way of getting the work in the first place is to position yourself differently. So you're going to do things differently. You might have a special signature of how you approach design that, that could be really appealing for the building and whetting the developer's appetite with imagery of that, that particular approach could be useful. But so I, I, I feel like... It's a competitive world, and I think architecture is very competitive in a way. And in order to get the work, you have to win that competition, and you're going to lose points because you're not experienced. But you have other qualities that you can leverage from, or you can partner or take a limited approach. So one way would be you know, just to do one part of the building and then to build knowledge and grow from that, like the interiors or the foyers or the common areas or some particular part you have experience with. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. You mentioned that you'd worked with them over a lot of years um, in the in the multi-res space. Does your studio just have a small number of clients that you do a lot of repeat business with? Or is there a sort of a philosophy of continuing to prospect and reach out to new people? And or is it just inbound? But I guess I'm just interested in that composition. Is the is the name of the game really establishing those very tight relationships? Yeah. A bit of both, actually, yep. and I feel as though sometimes we'll take we'll go to a place where we feel like the skills and the talent that we have in our office, as it evolves over time, is more suited to a specific type of residential product, and we're going to pursue that. So, in the near future, our big focus is on more of a high-end, smaller boutique offering. Whereas in the past, we had also, and we are working on some very large projects, but we feel that the talent within our office is. Uh, lies within great attention to detail, doing things a little bit differently, um, interesting spatial volumes, unusual construction techniques. And therefore, we're, we're kind of becoming more particular in the areas we want to target. Now, in the past, it might have just been less particular because I was excited about the opportunity. Or, or it might have also been that um, we didn't really you know, know that about our business just yet. So, you know, an example of that is I've just learned that design and construct building is very hard. And if you want to get a good quality outcome, you've got to just keep everything standard and just have a few special things. So if you're relying on having beautiful, slim window frames on a project in Alexandria, then you're, you're probably relying on things that are unrealistic. Yeah. But if, you're, if you've designed the building where everything is standard and there's a couple of special things that you can really focus on, then you'll probably be able to deliver it quite well because you can put your energy into that and let the whole DNC machine, if you could refer to it in that way, just kind of take everything back to the most economical, the safest, the lowest risk way of building. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. In terms of the the public side, I'm imagining that there's some similarities in the journey there, right? Is it, you know, you start off working on something very small with a particular you know, council or government, and then you gradually work your way up as you go. Are there any major differences in how, like from a business standpoint? No, it's, no, it's the it, same sort of thing, isn't it? it? It is the same thing. And in a way, the public process is, I think, probably harder mm. 
because you will be assessed by a number of points on a spreadsheet and you'll make your submission for the new project. And a lot of them are government projects and that's why they have this more transparent way of working is that um, you'll make your submission, you'll score a lot of points in the experience that you have or the approach that you have or the personnel that you have, but you might lose points in not being in that state within the country. Or uh, you might lose points because you haven't done exactly that scale of building. Mm. I remember getting some feedback on one project. There was a requirement of part of the project was to do a 1,000 square meter office. And I put in our relevant experience a 5,000 square meter office and a 4,000 square meter office. And they called back and said, well, we didn't score you very high there because you hadn't showed us. The 1,000 square meter office, in my view, was, well, if you can do five, you can do one. But it, do, it doesn't always go like that. So you actually have to kind of think about that as a kind of a point system. And therefore, there's always someone who's more experienced than you are. Yep. So getting through that process is quite hard. Yep. And it's also, I think the public projects are very, very competitive in mm. terms of fees. So if your fees are high, you're just not going to yep. go. You won't get in there. So it's it's similar kind of process and we've we've gradually built our way into that world, but it's a it's a very hard one to yeah. to crack because you can't just go in and, you know, try to sell yeah, exactly. Sell, sell, yeah. sell all the yeah the, the portfolio of the practice leading up to where you are. Yeah. As far as business development goes, you went into a bit of detail earlier about who sort of plays that role in the practice and previously Evan had been very involved in that and, and that sort of thing. But, hmm. but these days now the practice is a bit bigger. Do you have members of your team who are devoted to entering competitions, sort of meeting with developers and, and is that sort of a function? Yeah. Within our practice, we have someone, Angus, who, who leads our competition and our EOI submissions. Mm -hmm. So he leads all of the competition work that we do and does an amazing project. That The team that work on competitions changes. But we have the one leader, and so there's a uh, knowledge that's transferred from one submission to the next one. Um, we also have a couple of people in the office that help with marketing mm -hmm. in various ways, and two uh, part-time people, Alex and uh, Veronique, and they all have they both have different roles, but they they also participate in a little bit of social media through LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook, and then look after the website and the updates that come with that, and any communications that might come from different magazines. Yeah. So that that's kind of part of it. And then the final component was that we have a core team of people kind of in our more executive team or more senior uh, people within the office meet every fortnight to discuss, you know, networking opportunities. And they'll, they'll talk a bit about meetings they might have had. And in that forum where we each say uh, what we're working on, then we'll start to think, uh, there's a lot of work in the pipeline. There isn't much in the pipeline. These are the kinds of sectors we need to, you know, be more involved with because our office works very well when we have one apartment building or com commercial building of similar scale in a DA stage and another one in documentation stage. It just, the, the resources within the office work well like that. And so they'll, they'll talk together um, about opportunities that are in the office and we'll, or around that we know of and, and try to attract that work. I mean, earlier you mentioned just a bit about, you know, whether we have one or two developers. We sort of have this, uh, we don't work with a lot yeah. and we, we tend to go back to the same people a bit. And then there's a few new ones that come in as well. But I feel like uh, in a way, uh, it's a bit like buying a car. The developers should probably be thinking about us as potentially being the right showroom for designing their car. Do, does the design ethos that we hold does that fit mm. the next project in, you know, Caraba Point that they want to build or is it more suited to another part of the world and what's the the potential of that? Yeah. And I like the car showroom analogy because if you were shopping for, say, a four-door sedan, there's a lot of choices, like there are a lot of architects out there, and each brand has different core values that, will come through in its DNA. So Mercedes will have a different set of core values to a Toyota or BMW or, and some of those are better suited to certain markets than others are. Yeah, absolutely. And and that sort of takes me to the next kind of question about brand, but there's this one final thing I wanted to touch on, which was you're uh, mm. interested in being a bit of a fly on the wall at your fortnightly executive team business development meeting. You mentioned sometimes mm. when the pipeline's full, when the pipeline's not so full. 
just briefly in a in a in a cycle or a month where you're feeling that the pipeline is not so full, I'd be fascinated to to get a sense of what actions or group decisions you might come to that would be the thing to then work on to start addressing that problem in the short term. Everything is long to medium term. But if we are openly saying we're missing a large apartment building, say, yep. and or a large commercial building in the DA stage, then we'll talk about who to connect mm. with. And we'll say, we, we, need, we need this now. So perhaps, you know, you could meet with this developer or you could go and talk to this person or does anybody know of any possible leads? And we'll talk about that and then try to actively make connections. Yeah. And we feel as though just the email and the phone call, it, it isn't necessarily good enough, but it's, it's a start. Yeah. And then at least you'll get an answer, which might be there's nothing around at the moment. And that's also fine. But what's also been quite good in our business, and we, this again, this is unplanned. We just sort of grew to who we are and how we work now just by kind of learning and developing, but there was no rule book followed. But we do small projects and large projects. And that is quite a nice combination from a creative point of view, because on the larger projects, you have less detail, but more ambition. You can influence a street or uh, both sides of the street on some occasions or make squares and beautiful public places or, you know, impact the way that hundreds of people live in that precinct. And that's quite a powerful thing. And then on the smaller projects, you can get right down to the detail and experiment with materials or experiment with construction techniques. And you just can't do that on larger projects. But in a, in a business where you do these two things, and we really pursue that from a creative point of view, when the large projects dry up and you can't control their timing, then the smaller projects often have a bit of range in them where they can take up a larger team. So mm-hmm. we can then say, and this happened right at the start of COVID when our larger projects went on mm-hmm. hold and some reason every person at home wanted to do some work to the house and, and call us about it. We just moved the team across to doing houses and they really worked on houses. So having that large and small scale worked quite well. And I think the difference is, especially for people who are living in their own house while they're planning to do changes to it, is that it's more elastic. It doesn't all have to, you know, it could be done in five months and that would be great, but it could be done in three if you were able to go faster. Yep. Or it could be done in seven if if you didn't have the resources. They've got a bit of elasticity. Yeah. Whereas the larger projects, you know, tend to be we need you to start tomorrow and and we need it all finished in four months. And that's just wham, you're in it and you've got to get going. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. In terms of an analogy that you brought up earlier, the car showroom and this distinctiveness between different brands and your studio might be the Mercedes or something else, this idea of what would be a good fit for a particular location or project. That's a pretty challenging thing to think about, isn't it, sometimes? Because architecture at the the highest end, the competition is, as you mentioned, it's particularly strong, right? There's a lot of good practices and they're all doing pretty, pretty amazing work. And you know, finding that point of difference, I feel like I bring it up with every single guest and we just struggle through the, the conversation of, do you know what your point of difference is? But do, do you have a sense of, you mentioned values, I suppose there's a look and feel component as well in terms of how you present yourself to the world. Uh, but is there anything else mm. that you, you've thought about in terms of what, what would make it easier for a potential client to have a conscious decision about the reasons that they might go for your firm versus another? Yes, and I think objectively I could say that we have a very strong focus on interiors Mm. and that's critical for us. So our interior design team isn't brought in at the end of the planning process to choose the colours and do some details Mm. or some joinery design. They're integral in the studio and their um, job as well as all of ours is to kind of imagine and create extraordinary spaces so to move beyond the standard as much as you can. So that's kind of one objective yeah. difference. The other one is that we're just um, more detailed than most people. Yeah. 
And I know that because we do a hell of a lot of drawings and they get checked so many times and they're generally pretty good documentation packs. So they're two very tangible mm. points of difference. The other part that relates more to the showroom is just what is the the flavor of the work that we do. And I feel as though, oh, generally speaking, our work's quite masonry-based, whether that's brick or concrete. And um, it has a kind of a particular sort of form in it that resonates and feels as though it unites all the work, whether it's very apparent or or not. Is It's sort of in all the work. And I feel like there's a fundamental to really modernist planning principles that applies to all of our work. So we'll try to I mean, one of my pet hates is having a door in the middle of a wall. I kind of want it at the end of the room. If I can get it out of the room, that's even better. And then I want to aggregate all of the elements together. So kitchen and bathroom, and I like that sort of pod design where they're all clumped together. So just those principles of how we plan and introduce symmetry and order and those aspects to the planning of the projects is really important as well. So I feel like that's probably the DNA that carries through. Nail, nail that question. Probably one of the best responses I've got because, yeah, oh, really? it's great Good. because you started with, um, you know, as you put it, tangible objective criteria. That's an awesome place to start with a point of difference. If you can go where, obje- where objectively have skill sets that other practices don't or don't have nearly as much as we do, that's awesome. But then also moving into that second area, the, the sort of the more what influences your work and the flavor of it, all of it. I think a lot of architects I find tend to avoid discussing that or going into that because they like to say this thing of we don't really have a practice style or a house style and that I hear that sort of refrain quite often but I think as a do listener you get, hearing you, it, you get into it you go oh yeah exactly that's that's perfect. Yeah but don't, uh, when I hear most people talk about that I think well that's I don't I don't, I don't of, get it. <laughs> I don't believe in what you're saying. I mean I hear a lot of them say and you kind of Get someone interview them and they say, "Oh, I like this part about your style." I have a style. I, yeah. Like, of course, you you don't you don't necessarily want to be limited to that part of your work, but you do have things you're interested in, and you do kind of explore things, and you do have curiosities that you are keen on understanding. I mean, so like in our work, the roof is very rarely a big thing. We're kind of more about the wall. Mm. It's just we're not trying to do that. It's just yeah. how we end up going. I feel that we haven't done much with wood and the reason is we haven't been that attracted to it because we've been <laughs> preoccupied with brick and concrete and stuff yeah. and other things. And now we're just thinking wood, let's let's have a go at wood, you know. <laughs> and I've got a feeling once we start it, then it will open up this whole yeah. world of understanding wood and working in different ways. And so wood's a big thing in our office at the moment, but it's not been that way. But I still feel as though some of those kind of concepts of, you know, spatial volume, brilliant planning, what does the material want to do? It's just a different medium of working in. And that's driven by changing circumstances. So in our office, we're really focused on sustainability and how much embodied energy is in the buildings that we're making. And then, you know, can we save on that? And if wood's the way, then maybe we just need to get serious about really looking at that at the moment as a new material. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the way you described as things that you're interested in that you kind of revisit and come back to because it's something that you you're, you're were interested in. That makes sense when we think about fashion designers, artists, film directors. You know, we, we see these sort of motifs that happen in their work and that's what starts to become recognizable and I think it is yeah. strange to hear sometimes architects looking to avoid being, I guess, as they see it, sort of pigeonholed or maybe this perception that they're sort of forcing something onto their clients. But I think they end up shooting themselves in the foot a little bit, approaching it that way. Yeah. And it, look, it's not a, like from a marketing perspective, it's not bad to be able to frame what it is that you're interested in yep. doing. I think that's probably pretty good. Um, there are people in the world who have an image like George Armani. He's always wearing a black exactly. T-shirt, yep. a black pair of pants. It's kind of that's a part of his image and uh i think you know people kind of understand that and they get that i feel like you've also got to leave the door Mm -hmm. open to growing and evolving and and developing now in terms of uh marketing i suppose if it's wildly different each time then a lot of potential clients aren't going to really understand what they're going to get but if there's a dna that's legible in most of the work then then they'll look at it and think well i feel like with them I won't get too much glass mm. or I won't, you know, it's not going to be, you know, like a Norman Foster project or, you know, it's going to be a different approach to yeah. that. And so that's at least kind of starting to narrow it down. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, you touched on risk being a big factor earlier. So if you're able to have a little bit more consistency in the work that you're doing and that consistency can be seen in the market, that just translates into rest, less risk, doesn't it? Yeah. And probably when they are going to market, and I'm just yeah. sort of thinking about apartment buildings here, they're going to want to leverage some of the other work that you've yeah. done. So we did this beautiful house for Judith Nelson called Indigo mm-hmm. Slam. And after that, uh, I mean, I kind of said to someone in passing, it's almost like a, a sculpture to be lived in. And that kind of got picked up as a bit of a tagline. Yep. And then after that, we had a developer saying, I want, I want to build a block of units. And I want them to be like Indigo Slam. And then he just wanted to use the tagline, sculpture to be yep. lived in. And of course, the leverage for selling these apartments before they were built was images of Indigo Slam. And so people, people want that. Yep. Don't they? Lots of people would love to live in that Definitely. house. Absolutely. <laughs> In, in terms of branding, the other side to it is the company brand, but there's also your your personal brand and mm. that you're, you, you know, doing things like this podcast, being visible, interviews, um, engaged mm. with the media, mm. also in quite engaging on your social media as well and your Instagram. And you put your personal side of things mm. out there quite openly and honestly as well. Did Was that always something that you were naturally sort of comfortable with doing engaging in that way as a director? Is it something that you sort of learned and practiced over time? Yeah. It, look, it's probably changed, you know, since Instagram's probably my introduction to doing that to the world up until that, I thought. Yeah. Two things. One is my life's pretty boring and <laughs> there won't be much to say. <laughs> that was one part of it. And then maybe you can just let the work speak for yeah. itself and the, the needs to, you don't need to sell it at all. And one of my really great friends pushed me really hard to join Instagram when it was very new. And she said, you've got to get on this social media platform. It's so good. And we had dinner a few times. I kept saying, I'm not, I'm not that interested. And I've, I joined LinkedIn, but I never look at it. I've never done Facebook. You know, I don't do Twitter. It's just not my gig. I'm, I'd rather spend my time at the drawing board. And I think what I end up just being pushed into it and doing it because I got sick of her asking me to do it. So I kind of did it out of duress, really. But I, I really, I loved it. I thought it was fun, actually. And I kind of enjoyed posting things that I thought people might be interested in. And then you get a few more followers and you post things that things might be interested in. And since that time, I've kind of realized, and I hadn't planned this at the start, but I've realized that people might want to follow just to know who you are noting that our industry is as much of a service industry as it is an industry that produces mm-hmm. products like drawings and specifications. I think we are in many ways a service industry and I feel like a successful job is one where the outcome is great and the process was fun and enjoyable. Like I think you should enjoy building. Everyone should enjoy it. It's a big, you know, if you're building a house, it's a big chunk of your life. Make it fun and enjoy it. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just, you know, four or five years of your life that's just compromised and that's a long time. But I feel like that's probably those forums for me and particularly Instagram is a bit of an opportunity to tell uh, anyone who's interested in following about what's happening in my life and what's, you know, who I am as a person a little bit. And then, you know, if I've been to a good concert and I want to tell other people it's really good, they might see that on there. Or if there's a car I really like, then... You know, I can share a little bit of a story about that. There's not a lot of super personal things on there, but um, I do think that that's not a bad thing to sell as well. And the the great thing about those kind of forums is you can just do whatever you want with it, really, can't you? You can make it as personal as you'd like it to be, or you can make it as work as you want it, and you can change it and you can edit it after it's been posted. So there's a ton of flexibility in that. But I feel as though it's allowed people to understand a bit more about who I am. Yep. And I'm not from Sydney, so I don't have deep roots in this city. I know a lot of people here, but I don't have those really deep roots where I can hang out with some people I went to school yeah. with and build a network out of that. So being able to tell the world about what we do through media, whether that's social or print or online, is how we're able to keep our business growing and we've been able to grow it to the size it is. So I I find all that very valuable and I think what you have to say is as important as just getting a message out there. One other thing yeah. I wanted to add to that was it was really off the back of Indigo Slam that I realized that <laughs> my attempts at marketing weren't as good as I thought they were. And, uh, you know, I just 
we we won some awards and generally the feedback was where on earth did you come from i've never heard of you don't know who you are and i, I thought to myself are you kidding like i've been slogging away at this for nearly 20 years now it's been a long time yep. and uh no one really knew about what we were doing um so i did think at the end of that well maybe you have to change it up a little bit and share the stories in a better way and build a bit of profile so that people do know who you are and that um understanding of how we work as well as what we make helps us to attract really amazing talent within the office and retain them and inspire them it also allows us to attract really great clients and then we, we even get you know emails and uh, contacts from consultants and builders saying i just love to work with you if there'd be an mm. opportunity so across the network there are benefits that are more than just you know getting the next job yeah. in the bag yeah definitely in terms of when indigo slam came out and you sort of looked back on all your all of your marketing hard work over the years maybe it was not so effective or just kind of perhaps too focused too focused too you know, focused we, on on what do you think on bell and vogue magazine okay. so we had put all our all our jobs we kept thinking well we finished a beautiful house let's get it yep. into bell or vogue living and then we'll market mm -hmm. from that most architects don't read that so they didn't know mm -hmm. who we were and it kept the phone ringing because someone would pick it up and say, I got a new copy of this and I loved this house. Can you do one for me like that? So in one ways it was working quite well, but other ways it was fairly limited in what it was doing for our whole company. That's so interesting because usually architects are heading the complete opposite direction. They're saying the way that I'm marketing, it's only being seen by other architects and I don't feel that I'm actually reaching clients. Right. And you're going, oh, we were reaching clients, but we weren't reaching any other architects, which you're the first right. person to That's ever right. raise that as a problem in my in my entire career. So right. I guess I, <laughs> I guess that is quite interesting. So maybe it comes back to what you were mentioning a second ago about those broader benefits of reaching consultants and other people in the industry and building the, that network. Yeah. Just maybe if you could dig a bit deeper into that of what the importance of that, why does that matter? I think it's interesting to hear that, that maybe we shouldn't discount this idea of raising your profile in the industry having importance. You touched on employment and recruitment and retention and that sort of stuff, but are there other sort of other meaningful benefits of sort of building that reputation? Uh, yes, uh, referrals mm -hmm. as well. So the, the, the major sort of ones in, in promoting within your own industry are to attract talent yep. and, you know, have them want to work here and know before they come what, what it's like, but also just uh, referrals that come through the industry. So you've got to have, I mean, it must happen a lot to people where they say, oh, I want to do a new commercial building and I want it to be incredibly sustainable. Who would mm. you go to? And they might just think, oh, Smart Design Studio have done that project. It's won some awards. You should talk to them. And you'd probably uh, do that if you felt like you weren't, a big competitor, yep. <laughs> but but that does happen as well. And we find a lot um, that people will call with a new inquiry and say something a bit like, I was looking for someone who could do something amazing with brickwork and your name kept coming up. People kept saying, go and speak to Smart Design Studio and here yeah. we are. And then, you know, then it's got out there because that's an understanding amongst the industry. Now that might've been created through making small videos on Instagram yep. of builders laying bricks or it might have been created from, you know, a big building being published in an industry magazine like the Rail Operations Centre for City Trains yep. or it might just be that, you know, there's some, some flats around the corner and people have seen them and they're made from brick. But you can, I think you can sort of build that approach and the, the, I think also consultants shouldn't be underestimated. Mm. You know, having an amazing consultant team will make your work better. An average consultant can actually make it worse. <laughs> but, you know, we can leverage from that and try to kind of build up to doing some exceptional work. So often we'll approach a, working with, a say, a structural engineer as here's a bit of a half-baked idea and the aspiration of the project is to do this. What do you think? How would you approach that? And then the, yep. and then the design develops. Yeah, yep. awesome. So in the time we've got left, I'm kind of interested more in this bigger picture of architects and their role in society and the built environment. And as a practice that has a large profile and, and a large audience, um, 
and 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 you appear in a lot of different contexts, different magazines, different awards programs all over the place. Be just interested in maybe getting your thoughts on as a practice, whether you feel that that bigger picture is improving, heading in the right direction, going the wrong direction, maybe mm-hmm. in terms of the relevance and role of architects in society and how we're involved and looked at and listened to. I, I guess just any sort of thoughts that come to mind on that topic. I, I, I love this question. And what comes to mind is a role that I feel we have, which is to continually educate the clients that we have about what's great in design and what is enduring. So what will move through fashion and be significant in years to come and will actually give them joy in the place they're living and working or visiting. And it, I'm really focused on this at the moment. And just recently I did a, a presentation where I just started with showing a client buildings designed by Palladio and their floor plans. And I kind of felt like I couldn't probably justify the floor plan we'd created without talking about how important a floor plan is for a building and going back to that. But I just thought that that was a great way to start the presentation with a small 15-minute lecture on something that they would probably find really interesting and would just change the tone a bit for it. So educating your clients is really important. Um, That education can extend to a discussion about investment versus cost Mm. in a project. So invest in quality materials, enduring design, in low maintenance materials and things that last a long time. And you'll actually save money in the long term, invest in sustainability, and you'll feel great about what you've done, which has got a high value. And you'll also be helping a planet and reducing your running costs. So there's, you know, a lot of benefits through there. That's how we're approaching it within our practice. We think every client is an opportunity to, to build that. And also, um, I feel like with our clients, if we're responsive, respectful of time, respectful of their budgets and treat them really well along with our builders, then we'll start to build trust in the team and then the trust builds great outcomes. Because I think you have to have that winning combination of great client, great builder, great architect to do exceptional work. It's, it's all, the whole team has to be aligned and, you know, running in unison together. Outside of that, as an industry, I I don't think we do a good enough job in promoting the work that we do. And I'm, you know, last year we won 23 architecture awards and very few of those have been presented to the general public. And I want to know why, Mm. how it is that someone could win a Wilkinson or Robin Boyd award or the Sulman prize and that story not be told to the general public. Now there would be lectures at Brickworks or another sponsored event where people get to talk in depth to other architects about what they're doing. But there's a whole, you know, there's millions of people out there who want to hear about architecture. We don't have to look at, you know, the figures of all the numbers of people that watch Grand Designs to know that this, it's huge. It's a massive thing. And I'd like that to be more embedded in our community. And I feel as though the benefits of doing that would be far reaching. You'd start to to kind of build understanding of the complexity of architecture. It's pretty easy to get something wrong. But in every building, there is literally thousands of components and thousands of opportunities for things to go wrong. So if you get two or three going wrong, it's not bad because you might have had, you know, 997 that go right in that scenario. So I feel like building understanding around the world, telling the stories, you know, getting out some good knowledge in there is really vital and I feel like as, an, as a profession we're, we're missing an opportunity to connect to the people who want it and occasionally we'll have someone write to us and say that they're organizing a tour of people could they yeah. come visit our studio and they're often people who are retired or from the general public very few of them are professionals and we just get a message back saying we put it up online the tour sold out in mm-hmm. 10 minutes you know it's 50 people that's 50 people who are already waiting to do to do this kind of event. There's stories to be told. I mean, as, 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 that's probably a mission of mine is to yep. see if we can get lectures for the public, the general public, about every winning architecture prize, yep. you know, on all the things that would be interesting. I think there's people who want to know about what's happening in education design. There's people who want to know about very sustainable solutions. There's a whole raft yeah, of things. I'm actively working on oh, this at the moment. That's it's amazing. And I else. think it's such a great idea. 
Um, the most recent guest I had on the podcast was Amanda Bailey in the UK and she was, I think you two should have a chat because I think we're on, on about the exact same stuff. But she was really, yeah. the whole episode was about this idea of educating public on, on well, the, the, the public are really interested in learning about this stuff, but exactly what you're saying as an industry, we're yep. not really giving that to them. But yep. we were trying to, we were talking about how that sort of can fit into a practice's marketing when that component isn't necessarily directly linked to getting more work and more projects. So sometimes it's hard to rationalize investing in that, doing that. But she she argued yep. that maybe 20% of your marketing and communications budget or time should be going towards those kinds of public activities. And I thought yep. that's such a nice clear model. At the end of the day, it probably is the responsibility of practices to not wait for somebody else to come along and organize that for them, right? That they as you're doing yeah. to actually think of designing your own programs to engage with the public in, in, in what we do. Yeah, and I think our approach to marketing is to take one that's very broad and very consistent. So it's to be continually um, photographing work, releasing it yep. to, to media, and then also to participate in things like today, in a podcast like today. We do some education work. We, we teach at, the, at UTS as well. And so being integrated and part of that also feel, I feel like it's not, there's no direct benefit, I don't think, to our business for doing that. It's really about giving back and broadening our knowledge, but also the knowledge of our company within a whole range of different areas. It's so, that, well, so we take this very broad view that we should be, have a presence in education. We should have a presence with the, our institute and our community. We should have a presence with the general public. We should have a online on presence, which is to anybody who wants to tap into it. And then we should be releasing our imagery to accounts like Instagram for to be freely used around the world. And then, you know, that, that may lead to more work, but it, and it may not. And it may just sort of mean that you're a little bit more recognized. Whether that's fruitful or not, I think it's not a bad thing. No, there. it can't hurt. William, you've got to go in the next few minutes, so we'll wrap up there. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast and very, very honest and open about everything that you're doing. So thank you and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. It was pretty, I mean, they're great questions and it's so nice to be a part of this. That was my conversation with William Smart from Smart Design Studio. If you'd like to learn more about William and the studio, you can visit smartdesignstudio.com Follow the studio on Instagram at smart.design.studio or follow William at William Smart. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.